0: on Cape Cod where it's normally quite cool and I have a guest today that I've had some correspondence with over the years and and whose work is just so good I I it's 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 a defense of journalism existing right now is Dexter Filkins' record of reporting and writing Dexter now works at the New Yorker but he's best known for covering the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan for the New York Times He was a finalist for a Pulitzer in 2002 for his dispatches from Afghanistan. And in 2009, won a Pulitzer as part of a team covering Pakistan and Afghanistan. His book, The Forever War, won the 2008 National Book Critics Circle Award. He's currently writing at The New Yorker. He wrote a, a really fantastic profile of Ron DeSantis, a rather difficult to understand and decipher person, which is one reason I asked him. But I also, I just, I've always wanted to have him on the podcast, and uh, I am thrilled to say welcome. Thanks for coming, Dexter. Thank you. Thank you. We were, just before we started, we were talking about reporting. What do you, tell me, Dexter, when you, what, how would you define reporting? Let's let's just start with that.
1: Well, you know, I was sort of trained in the old school, which is, I mean, I started, I started in the West Palm Beach Bureau of the Miami Herald, you know, 400 years ago. And, you know, I was like a police reporter. That was my first job. And so you go and every morning and you go down to the sheriff's department and you get the police, the police blotter, and you look at how many people have been arrested the night before. It's pretty straight. It's pretty simple. And it really is who, what, where, when, and how, just like that. And what's, what's remarkable to me is how that that tradition you know fast forward 30 years later it's practically gone and it's now it's you know less of that far less reporting if any reporting at all nobody leaves their desk and there's like a lot of commentary thrown in and so the kind of the old school go out and report and just find the facts and then tell the reader what you found is it's not entirely vanished but it's it's really expensive and it takes a lot of time and so just fewer and fewer people do it anymore.
0: When you say it takes a lot of time, it means just actually physically going to places, yeah. conducting interviews that may not work out, talking to people who may be pointless to talk to, pursuing stories which peter out after a couple of days reporting out. What were some of the biggest getaways that you had that you thought you might have a piece? You, 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 you Do you ever remember a moment where you were like, I've got something here, and then it just disappears, and you... You want to kind of
1: salvage it, but realize, nah, I just got to move on. It happens like all the time. I mean, it's it's usually in the course of of a piece that I'm working on. And I really, I've identified somebody and I really want that person. And I really want to talk to that person. I know this person knows. All I got to do is get in the room and I try, I, I ask him or her, I write an email, I write a letter, I make phone calls, I call his friends, days go by. I wait i wait i wait that happens god that happens all the time just you know it's happening now (laughs) but but god the if if, when you ask me about reporting like my experience of reporting it's just the nature of it you're just waiting you're you're waiting for the phone to ring you're waiting for somebody to call you back you're waiting for somebody in you know you're you're sitting in their waiting room and you're waiting to go in you're just waiting 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 and sometimes you wait forever and that's so that's right it's just so it's so inefficient that if like If there was a camera on my laptop, you know, recording what I was doing, it would look totally pathetic. You know, look ridiculous. This person has no plan. They're just wasting time.
0: And what's happened, of course, with the media in general is that the desire to have instant facts and to be updated constantly with new material means that the entire structure is geared against exactly what you are describing, which is, that, for example, like we are currently in a news cycle at this very moment. We're recording this on Tuesday in which we have no idea what really happened in Mar-a-Lago yesterday. We don't have the warrants. We don't know what was in it. We don't know what was taken. We don't know the whole point. And yet we are, the structure of the industry demands that we have 15 opinion pieces by eight in the morning
1: on this thing. And there's nothing to say. I, I think that's the most frustrating part to me is that it's not it's not the way it's not the it's not the speed necessarily like you as a newspaper reporter you never have time you know the the old joke is the two the two wire service reporters you know l- leaving the city council meeting and one says to the other you know one of these days I'm going to write about something after it happens and it's it's always been that way you know because you're always on deadline you're always late but I think what is what I, what I really viscerally rebel against is the substitution of that with so much commentary and analysis. And so we're just overwhelmed with it. So like you just take the Mar-a-Lago incident. We've already been told it's, 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 it's bad for Biden. It's good for Biden. It was a terrible thing they did to Trump. It was necessary. We've been told all this stuff over and over again, and we still don't even know what happened. And so that's, I think that's kind of fundamentally changed the national conversation but it's it's just filled with you know as we all know and we all hear all day. it's just it's noise but there doesn't seem to be any way to kind of either slow it down or kind of turn the volume down
0: where did you grow up in you were in florida as so a native floridian
1: no no i was born in ohio but my my mom moved to florida took my brother and my sister to florida when i was really young so we grew up in cape canaveral which is a Tiny beach town. That every where the neighborhood and the entire town basically worked at Cape Kennedy, worked at the Space Center, including my mom. And and it's still just a little town on the beach. I mean, I grew up a hundred yards from the ocean. Not bad. That's pretty wonderful. <laughs> could hear that. I could hear the. I could hear the the waves hit the shore every night before I went to bed. I missed that. And when did you? when did you start thinking you might be
0: interested in reporting things? Was it something you had early or was it, was it just, was it a natural development of your career? No, I, th- I think,
1: I think I kind of backed into it. Like, like a lot of reporters, I kind of backed into it. My, my mom worked at the Cape. She worked at Cape Kennedy, but her real passion was, was politics. And Cape Canaveral is a small town. So it was, it's like, I mean, this is cliche, but like democracy kind of works at a really local level. So she would go to city commission meetings and and there was actually quite a lively, there were some enormous issues that were kind of happening at the time, which she got really involved in, which was, this sounds really boring, but it's not zoning, which was, this is a sleepy beach town in Florida o- on the ocean. The real estate is potentially priceless. People want to come in and put 25 story condos on the beach. And so my mother basically orchest- helped orchestrate or kind of led the orchestration of this kind of campaign to stop that. And it became, it actually became an enormous issue. It kind of ended up going to the Florida Supreme Court, which she won. Uh, But it was, it was, and to this day, you can go to Cape Canaveral and there really aren't any high rises on the beach. And that's in large part because of the efforts that my mom was helping to lead. And I think that kind of, you know, that was just, you know, we (laughs) talked, we talked about, you know, we had like politics at the dinner table. So one thing led to another, I actually, I went to, I went to the University of Florida. And when I got out, I actually spent a year in Washington working for a a US senator, which which was like a little disillusioning, and didn't really, I, I think what attracted me about journalism was that you could actually just just what we were saying, just, just tell people what you know, to be true, which is which sounds like a really minimal nothing thing. But but you're inside this kind of very tight harness of what you may write you know you can you can write what you can prove and within that it's it's pretty liberating
0: what what attracted you to that straitjacket and who (laughs) told you there was a straitjacket i mean where did you get that idea that because today you think that people are not such aware so aware that they are writing within very tight constraints of what can be proven to be true. Yeah, And you also seem to have, when you said that, I just want to tell people what's happening. <laughs> That's also not a motive that you don't find that common today, but it's a, it's, it's the deepest motive for a reporter, I would think.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, at a super grand level, I think, I think Gary Wills said who, you know, worked as a journalist for a while. Journalism was a way to get someone else to pay for my education. You, you have, you have these incredible experiences and you see these amazing things. I mean, I've been to like 85 countries, more or less on someone else's dime. I've seen these incredible things and, and I I get to go back and very excitedly, you know, I go to the bar table or the dinner table and say, oh my God, here's what I saw. It was amazing. And that's kind of, it's it's pretty wonderful to be able to be paid to do that. But, it, but again, at a super basic level, if you're just a, if you're just a, a local reporter, I mean, but the, and the, the world's changed, but when I started the Miami Herald and I was just the police reporter, you know, there, the internet wasn't happening yet. And so people read the papers in the morning. And so if you wanted to know what happened overnight, you had to pick up the paper. And so the, but the local, you know, the local paper, the Miami Herald was an amazing newspaper. It was, it was incredible and incredibly aggressive, you know, God help any politician that broke the law in South Florida and there were a lot of them who, but the that that was very attractive to me in the sense that you could it was it was limiting in what you could do but it was you could feel good about doing it and you could feel you could feel like you were kind of at least trying to make the world a slightly better place and you could feel the impact more when
0: it came out on a daily or a single i remember just in my own career actually i remember i remember when i first started being an intern and i used and i wrote editorials at the daily telegraph the old the old newspaper in london and the thrill i had of getting on the train the next morning from where i grew up to go into london and (laughs) all these people were reading that paper they were reading it this daily telegraph was in their hand i was sitting among them they were looking at this thing
1: yeah and
0: I also could see if they went to the editorial page, I was like, maybe they're write, reading my words now. That's so fucking exciting. And that feeling, man, I'm in the middle of all these people doing reading what I wrote, just doesn't exist anymore. It, 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 it's there because online, of course, people are reading it so much all the time, yeah. but you don't get that. Or like when you wrote, I would occasionally write a big essay of the New York Times Sunday Magazine back in the day. And boy, you could almost feel it. Yeah, Totally hit the collective consciousness by that afternoon?
1: Well, I think I think the most powerful I've I've ever felt in my career was when I was I covered the county commission for in Miami. And that that sounds like, oh, God, how boring is that? It it was so interesting. It's the largest local government in the Southeastern United States. It's everything from like street lights to to zoning, to homeless, to public health. And every week at the county commission meeting, there'd be hundreds of people there with kind of very urgent and pressing issues. And if I wrote a story for the Miami Herald about what was going to happen that morning, you know, the county commission may approve the construction of a poultry farm in the middle of this neighborhood. There'd be 500 people in the morning at the county commission meeting because they read my story and it was the only way they knew about it. And, And I, like, for example, how the world's changed when I covered the county commission in Miami the meetings would go on sometimes for you know 12 14 hours and i was not allowed as an employee to to leave the room to if i wanted to go to the bathroom i had to call and get somebody from the newsroom to come and spell me because that's how important it was and that's how seriously like that's how seriously the paper took it wow
0: and when did you first when was your first actual attempt to report something Professionally or or not, or otherwise.
1: Oh my gosh! It was don't laugh. I was I was living in England. I was in graduate school, and you went to Oxford. I went to Oxford. Yeah, and Dan Marino, who was then a very famous quarterback for the Miami Dolphins, came to. He came to London and gave a football clinic. And he was being sponsored by some. He was being sponsored by Budweiser, and 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 so I kind of I wrote a story about it, and I and I the Miami Herald was happy to run it from, you know, I was just this unknown person, and and I was able to play off of this, you know, kind of what's what's more strange here, American beer or American football, which they quite liked. But that was that was yeah, and I was hooked, of course. And that had
0: a big presumably you got some feedback from back home on that <laughs> yes.
1: one. Well, it sort of got it's me into the door story. There. Yeah.
0: And so you then so Miami was your your training ground
1: here. Yeah, and Miami <laughs> Miami is an amazing. It's just an amazing American city. You know, it's it's incredibly diverse. It's always churning in the sense that you can you can track this in the census. The the new arrivals come, they they stay for a few years, they move out, more are coming in all the time. It's basically, you know, the the shorthand was well it's the it's the cubans and the and and the black people and 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 the anglos and the three kind of big groups it's much more complicated than that but but it's a kind of seething beautiful gorgeous corrupt violent city and so it's kind of a it's a reporter's dream i mean it's like it's kind of miami vice absolutely miami vice and a little bit of beirut
0: i remember going there very late eighties, early nineties, where it was, it was, it was very romantic to be honest (laughs) with you. And a lot of, a lot of the, a lot of the gays would go down there back then. Yes. South beach when it was still pretty bombed out, it was pretty rough and you had these kind of fashionable homos uh, and their models. (laughs) And then you would also have these wonderful old Jewish, people having their early bird specials a diner which you could go to which i loved and and then you would have all the latins and you would have like all these cubans beginning of construction work but it was this amazing mixture of stuff back then and they were the gays were beginning to renovate the hotels too i think they uh, were they were the pioneers yeah yeah as usual and but that was a really glamorous time i remember feeling i would go there over christmas and 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 just to feel this is a real underground new burgeoning world, a very diverse. And you know, from a kid from a small English town, this was this was amazing. <laughs> this was this was so much cultural power all around me, and the mess of it, the sprawling mess of it, and the tropical weather. I mean, the whole thing was just insane. The idea that America was a country that could include a city like that as well as Seattle, for example, yeah. or or Du Bois. And you're just like, this is this is a big this is bigger than a country. This is an entire continent here. It's, and Miami seems particularly strange from a broad American
1: point of view. It's very much its own thing, right? Definitely. Definitely. But God, it was it was such a crazy place. And it still is. I mean I, I remember and I'm just remembering I drove home one night. As soon as I got home, my phone was ringing as I went through the door. It was the newsroom. And they said, some refugee smugglers have just dropped off 300 Haitians on Star Island. And Star Island is, there isn't a house on Star Island that costs less than $20 million. And, and so here were, I drove to Star Island 100 miles an hour. And here were Haitian refugees wandering am- amid the tropical mansions in the middle of Biscayne Bay thinking that they had just materialized in in heaven itself having been dropped off by these refugee smugglers something like that happened every day in Miami it was just it's such a crazy city and it still does i think it's not as violent as it was then because i in the late 80s and early 90s the time you speak of was still kind of the 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 tail end of the of the cocaine wars which was igniting you know gun battles in in the streets in downtown miami and miami beach
0: So what was the big story back then for you? What were you mainly assigned to in Miami? It was,
1: it was, it was always quotidian stuff. So when I covered the county commission, it was, it was whatever was happening. And, and it was everything, you know, everything as I described, but it was, and then I I covered the courthouse and and the courthouse is criminal courthouse, which is an extraordinary, it's extraordinary to be a reporter in a a crazy American city and cover the courthouse. Mm -hmm. Because essentially what a courthouse is, if you're a reporter, is it's just floor after floor, hallway after hallway, uh, opening onto little theaters. And so you just walk down the hall, you talk to the bailiffs, the bailiffs say to you, you got to go into into Judge Greenspan's courtroom. There's a crazy, there's like a crazy custody case going on right now, or there's a, there's an amazing ax murder that's unfolding there. And it's like falling out of the roof on you, but, but, but through these, through these smaller stories you you would get the feel of the great American city, which was Miami, in all of its kind of all of its turmoil and tumult.
0: How much have you been back there recently or over the years? gotta go back stay in touch with me yeah, yeah, yeah as often as I can yeah yeah so that, let me let me let me get right into <laughs> you. you you wrote this really w- wonderful and really helpful profile of Ron DeSantis who's you know probably one of the most important figures in American politics right now the miami that could produce someone like that is a different miami than the one that existed in the early 90s um, uh, or maybe i'm wrong about that tell me how you see desantis's emergence what it says about how florida has changed
1: god it's definitely miami changed miami has changed
0: definitely and and how and why cuz I always thought of it as a basically a democratic state, big D, with a with a Cuban conservative streak and and, and lots of retirees and Jewish people. So tell me why you think it is. What, what do you think has shifted?
1: Well, it has it has the states changed quite a bit. Miami's always been kind of a world apart down there in the sense yep. that, you know, that the shorthand version is the southeast, southeast Florida, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, Palm Beach. That's the I-95 corridor and then and then Tampa and St. Petersburg on the West Coast or the I-85 corridor. So the, the retirees come from I-95 to Miami or they go from Chicago and Ohio to the West Coast. And so they're they're very different worlds. So if you if you find yourself in the airport of Miami, which is like feels like Caracas, and then you f- take a little plane and you fly to Tampa, you feel like you've landed in a library. You know, in the in the Midwest, totally, totally different. So they've always been really different. But I think, and Desantis is from he's from the West Coast, just north of Tampa, in a little town called not a little town, thirty five thousand people called Dunedin. I think what's happened it's 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 very complex, of course. I mean, the, the thing about the Cubans is that that the Cubans are often typecast as these kind of you know crazy right wingers. And, and in some ways that's true, particularly with regard to foreign policy, but it's much more complicated than that because the, the, the Cubans in Miami tend to be very educated, very sophisticated, basically liberal, a kind of small L liberal, except when you kind of hit the foreign policy bell and then, and then kind of, then they revert to type. But, but I think what's happened to Florida, I think is that it's, it's, Demographically it's changed. And God, you're stumping me. There's no there's no simple answer. Right. And and I think there was a there was a I had this long conversation with this wonderful guy, Max Topanovich, who was the chief of staff to Bob Martinez, who was the governor of Florida in the 1980s, moderate Republican. And he explained it kind of very briefly, and I thought very succinctly, which is we there was always an element of the Republican party that was crazy. It was and it was 15% of the party and we told them whatever we needed to tell them to get them out to the polls. We made a bunch of promises to them. We blew them off. We told we talked about abortion, whatever it took to get them to the polls. And that worked for us. And it worked to get people like Bob Martinez, who's again, kind of old-style Republican, elected to office. And what changed was Trump. That that Trump came and kind of energized energized the population in a way got people to the polls who had never voted for, before, but then kind of took the lid off of the kind of the self-restraint of, of, of the rest of the party. And so now Max said, Max Stepanovich said now it's 85% of the is crazy. Right. And, and there's no way to go back. And, and that's, that's right. a kind of, that's a really shorthand version. And, but, you know, but the idea that, Florida might be the base for a
0: Republican revolution or a conservative. That that's quite a new. I mean, I I, I didn't think of it that way. But 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 then you also had plenty of sort of right wing figures like Matt Drudge or the the sort of the the members of the conservative media elite who would pick living in Miami. They would talk about the low taxes. They would they would sure. celebrate the sort of an anti California. Yeah, 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 and so it kind of developed that way, even though. Not so long ago, people were predicting that that Florida would become solidly democratic on the basis of its Latino population, and that has not happened. I'm fascinated by how that didn't happen. Well,
1: and and, to to pick up on your point, the majority of of voter registration in Florida was democratic forever until 2018, and that's the year it flipped, and that kind of coincides with the election of Ron DeSantis, and so... A lot of that is still, you know, if you go to the panhandle in Florida and you go to you go to North Florida, it's still the deep south. And so Mm -hmm. there's still this kind of residual people that had voted democratically for generations. And they're kind of they're still flipping slowly to to the Republicans. But sort of the people who voted for Lawton Childs, for example,
0: you know, those old those those Democrats.
1: Yeah. And and, but I I think what's happened and it's happened so quickly. So it was Trump in 2016 and then DeSantis essentially taking the baton and just running really hard with it. The same rhetoric, the same style, this just very, very angry, kind of aimed at exactly the same audience. You've just felt this kind of sea change happen, like almost overnight. And so, and so as you, as you ask me about it, I feel like I haven't even had time to digest it all because it's happened so rapidly. And so I feel like now here we are 4 years later in 2022 and Ron DeSantis this slashing populist conservative has just a stranglehold on the on the on the party if not the state. And so that that's happened so quickly.
0: And DeSantis is not a Trump like figure. He is a a rather classic aspiring a politician in of, of the elite. He he's a Harvard Yale educated. So so at what point did he become this? Did, did he just smell the Trump the the Trump vapors and and move, or was he always obviously one thing that happens to conservatives and I. Of, of, when they go through institutions like Yale and Harvard, is that if you're not careful, you will become tribalized and angry because it is a marginalizing experience. It's, it's It can be a radicalizing experience to be constantly condescended to, to be thought of as as, as morally, sus- morally suspect, morally suspect, not intellectually divergent, but morally suspect, as well as dumb and all the rest <laughs> of it. You have obviously someone highly intelligent, Highly motivated, goes to Harvard Yale, then decides to become this, this sort of populist figure. Do you did you get a sort of timeline on that from him? Was he always like
1: that as a kid or a teenager? Well was
0: there something aggressively tribal about him back then?
1: Well, he's he's he has the resume for sure. And it's it's perfect. You know, Harvard, Yale, baseball, served in Iraq for the military. It's, it's a perfect resume, but he's a working class kid and he grew up in a working class neighborhood. And so I think that sets him apart a bit. I, I actually I drove I went to Dunedin. I remember I had come from the CPAC conference in Orlando, which is, you know, this kind of screaming yeah. wild affair. Drove to, I drove to Dunedin I pulled into the McDonald's. I kind of went to the bathroom and changed my clothes, <laughs> put on like put on a nice shirt. I went into DeSantis, old neighborhood, found his dad's house, knocked on the door he came out he was wearing a t-shirt and a pair of shorts the neighborhood looked exactly like the one i grew up in you know jealousy windows little lawn sprinklers attached to the attached to the garden noses, trump signs up and down the street and that that's the world he came out of it white largely white and and working class and he he got to yale not on a baseball scholarship but basically on the strength of his of his i think he his father told me he had a 99th he scored the 99th percentile on his SATs. He's really, really smart. A couple people told me that they thought he had a chip on his shoulder, but I think it's I think it's more than that. I think he was described to me by so many people as remote and kind of closed off. And I, I'm I'm looking for the right word, but but somebody who is deeply awkward in personal conversations. And so I think not not to jump ahead, but I think. I think I think that the challenge for Ron DeSantis is going to be like how he kind of can he overcome that. But but to answer your question about where does that come from, it, it was it's very difficult for me. It was very difficult for me to to discern how much of what how much of DeSantis's kind of persona as he projects his political persona, how much of that is is deeply felt and believed, and how much is opportunism. I think he's always been a conservative. You can tell. But, you know, he's he's an angry conservative, like he's a table pounder, you know, he's and he's going right for Trump's constituency. And I don't I don't know. My guess is like a fair amount of that is contrived. I mean, a a fair amount of that is calculated. That's my guess.
0: The the resentment of elites or of liberals, that seems to me pretty authentic with him. And that is the vibe I get. But it comes from experiencing growing up when you're constantly being regarded your background or your values yes, yes was he was he
1: religious growing up was he
0: were they catholics
1: catholic went to catholic school for a while but there, there i didn't i didn't get a sense of there being kind of a moment when he flipped there, there may well have been but i remember i mean you speak of what's it like to be a conservative in the ivy league i remember having the same conversation with john bolton's law professor and with Clarence Thomas's law professor, and they both said the same thing, which is which is you have to be prepared to be condescended to, and to be ostracized, and to feel kind of like a, like an orphan. And and so, in the case of John Bolton, they said, well, you know, John can sort of that's where John learned how to give as good as he got. That's where he learned to be so combative, and it's like where much of what we see coming from Clarence Thomas came from, which is like this sense of being kind of in battle all the time. And I I didn't get a sense that I didn't get a sense from DeSantis that, that that happened at Yale as much as like the picture I got from Yale was just this deeply focused, totally driven, very self-contained guy. Powering through Yale and checking all the boxes.
0: And why go to Iraq?
1: I don't know. I mean, I, his friend told me he's, he was inspired by by the Tom Cruise movie, A Few Good Men, which is about, you know, the the Tom Cruise plays the Jag, you know, plays the. the I guess he's a Navy lawyer who tries the guys from Guantanamo, but I, I can't. I mean, I would have no trouble imagining that DeSantis went because he's patriotic. None at all, which, you know, right. sounds cheesy and kind of you can yeah. hear people sneering in, in Manhattan, but but I think those kinds of things, there were there were when I drove through his neighborhood, there weren't just there weren't just Trump signs, there were American flags in New York. And you know, people yeah, yeah. people still do that outside of New York and Washington and
0: San Francisco. But it's also interesting choice to be a Jag. I mean to be to be concerned with the laws of warfare and to have the intellectual grip of that complex set of arrangements which i got to understand better during the iraq and afghanistan wars and you sure you sure do need to be a tough tough as bricks to go in there in combat situations and enforce the rules of war and that's what he was doing right yeah it's primary focus it's
1: it's i've been to a couple of before an operation, a military operation, I went to a couple of these in Iraq. You don't often get to go to to these as a reporter. You get a legal briefing, which I mean, totally bizarre. You know, this is like unprecedented, really. I mean, this didn't happen in Vietnam. It didn't happen in World War II. A lawyer comes in the room, essentially, and says, here's when you can shoot, and here's when you can't, and here's who you can shoot, and here's who you can't. And it gets complicated. And so when they, like, I remember before the very bloody and insane battle for Fallujah, they, they took that dial and they dialed it way back. And so they said, look, if you see a taxi cab, fire one shot in the air. And if they don't stop, you can light them up. You know, if a guy picks up a cell phone, you can kill him, you know, because they were presumed to be enemy, which I think in most cases they, they definitely were. But it's a very, it's a it's almost a surreal experience to sit to, to, to sit in a legal briefing before you go into battle. And there's, there's a lawyer telling you what you can and cannot do. And that's, I think, DeSantis was attached to SEAL Team 5. And and this was in a period, he was in Ramadi, he was in Anbar Province, when they were running operations every night and just, I mean, in the, in the course of that period in Ramadi, in Anbar Province, they basically wiped out Al-Qaeda with the assistance of the Sunni tribes. That's the phenomenon known as the, the Arab Awakening or the Sunni Awakening. And... So that was just like every night they were it was kill and capture, kill and capture, kill and capture. And I think, you know, DeSantis was, you know, if not in combat, was certainly like in the middle of the planning and the execution of those operations.
0: That's pretty baller. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it seems to me, I mean, for, for a presidential candidate. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and
0: and it's also I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but it reassures me. The reason it reassures me is because you know, one of the key issues of that war, uh, one of the central issues, and you know this as well as anyone, was the, the point at which certain figures in the leadership of the political branch were giving out signals that these laws, these rules were not necessarily to be followed in all costs. And the dismissal of concerns about that, the dismissal of concerns about what was going on at Guantanamo Bay, what was going on at Abu Ghraib particularly, and throughout the the several, to have someone in the middle of that who was actually, whose job it was to understand that we can't just become barbarians in response. There are rules and laws that make us different. And if you're thinking about our concerns currently about the abuse of executive power, the the lack of scruples that you saw in someone like Trump, even though in fact he didn't do much militarily, but he certainly had no problem with torturing people, with shooting civilians, right. with with all the rest of it. DeSantis, it's hard to think of him agreeing to that kind of war, given his background. I, right? I
1: agree. I mean, I I think I think the mystery, what we don't know yet about DeSantis, but I, but I think as you, as you suggest, I think. The signs are kind of encouraging. He, for instance, before he ran for Congress in the 2000s, he wrote a book about our, our founding fathers. As a, as a political book, it's pretty good. And you can, when you read the book, you realize like DeSantis, he knows the Constitution and he cares about it. He knows what it says and he knows what it means. And, and he's a lawyer. And, and so it's, it's, hard, it's hard for me to imagine because, you know, I, I, I live in New York City you know, you, you mentioned the word DeSantis and people say, ah, he's a he's a fascist or he's more dangerous than Trump, et cetera, et cetera. It's hard. It's hard for me in some ways to imagine somebody like DeSantis kind of throwing all that out the window because he he knows it and he understands it. And God knows he went to Iraq for it as a lawyer. And so in, in that way, I, I find it encouraging that in the way that you suggest
0: and let's let's talk about another slightly encouraging thing about him <laughs> he, he's not crazy about the climate he he the climate question that that now he's he's definitely does not want to give out any cultural si- signals that he is somehow a tree hugging environmentalist and and there's a certain amount of contempt he has that, in his rhetoric but in actuality, when he's attempting to deal as a governor with a state that's clearly besieged by climate change, I mean, Miami is probably the most affected city in the United States. Yes. With respect to sea levels, actually doing some shit, actually, actually getting some stuff done. Tell, can you unpack some of that? Because it was the most surprising thing to me in your profile about him.
1: Well, you know, he, he came up, he followed Rick Scott, now United States senator. And Rick Scott was Rick Scott was about as anti-climate change as you could possibly be. He he as governor he forbade the use of the term climate change or sustainability any number of terms so so that in state documents climate change could not be discussed, you know, full stop, which is you know, which is nuts. It's insane. So DeSantis came in, but that but that's that's what's happened to the Republican Party in Florida. And DeSantis, as you say he's not he's not pounding the table you know and hugging trees but but he's been he's been very mindful of the environment he's spent money he's certainly appropriated money to to fight climate change he's been i think pretty good on the environment where particularly when compared to his predecessor whether it's i mean he, I wrote a separate story about something he did which I thought was kind of wonderful where he approved or basically signed legislation, but backed the legislation that essentially made wildlife corridors throughout the entire state, essentially designed to connect all of the the states, basically half of the state's land would, would all be connected to each other, which, you know, I think we've all learned that that isolating a species is the fastest route to extinction and to, to prevent that. So that, and and in that way, Florida is like way ahead of the rest of the country. And so I think... One of one of the pollsters I talked to in Florida said, like, no politician can go against the environment in Florida for, for very long and hope to win because it's too beautiful. It's too everybody cares about it. The economy is based on it, tourism, et cetera. So you do it at your peril. And so so in some ways, DeSantis is being very sensible about that. But I think, again, I think whatever his political inclinations are, he's he's a very smart guy. And I think he he probably he must know. What the challenges are and and I think he's he's done a pretty good job so far of dealing with some of them on covid you have this these these competing
0: things you have first of all at the beginning, we should be fair to a lot of these officials we didn't know a huge amount and what we knew was subject to change and revision and at the same time it could be disastrous. and then you have of course the emerging politics of it which which shifts a little bit at the beginning it was it could have gone one way in the end it came another but with the sadness you get it seems to me two things and you tell me this is also what i'm gleaning from your piece one you get a sense of this fuck you all we're not we're not going to fucking kowtow to some asshole from New York telling us, you know, Fauci or whatever. (laughs) Secondly, we also. but then at the same time, this is what interests me about him is that he's sitting home studying this shit and trying to figure out himself with this rather prodigious easily. I mean, a brain that can easily also seemingly be focused quite clearly in a way that's, the opposite of trump i mean it's 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 the absolute direct opposite completely who will lock himself up sit around with a bunch of papers and come up with his own understanding of it so that's that could not be more different right so and that that is the basis of his covid response right or or no that's it it both
1: that's it and it's and it's a it's really strange on one hand because as you say he he immersed himself in the material like a graduate student. And I mean, I, you know, I, the, the piece opens with an interview with Jay Bhattacharya, who's a, who's a at Stanford University, who said, I was stunned. And, you know, DeSantis called him out of the blue one day at his home. He said, I was amazed. This guy had read everything. He was completely conversant in the science. And DeSantis, I think it's fair to say he, he figured out his own way really early and decided to go there and then stuck to it. And then on the other hand, he's like saying basically screw you screw the scientists to hell with the elites fuck all of you and that's that plays into it plays for him politically to the same constituency that Trump is going so, going for so it kind of like works for him in this strange way so so in a way it it's kind of perfect but it's you know a little a little disturbing but 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 then i think the kicker is you know we can say well, maybe he got it all wrong. I, I don't think he did. I mean, I, I think we're, we're not entirely sure yet because the disease is so complicated and nobody really understands it all yet. And we'll be studying it for years after. But the thing that really struck me was that when you allow for factors like age and obesity, Florida's death rate at, at this stage of the pandemic, two years later, two and a half years later, is almost equal to what California's is. California shut down their economy for two years. They shut their schools down for two years. They did immense damage to their students, shut the economy down. Florida was open the whole time, same death rate. I'm sure there's a lot of mysteries in there. I'm sure there's a lot of things we don't know. But one thing you can't do is say DeSantis is a nut, you know, that he was a zealot, because clearly he was sort of clearly he was trying to he was trying to do the best he could and without regard to politics.
0: Yeah, there was a the instinct of politicians at that moment, you know, and, and you can see why most of the instincts are going towards that shut everything down. It's going to be a fucking disaster. At the same time, there were a handful of them. I think of Johnson, for example, in the UK, whose instinct originally was like, you know, we're just going to take this hit and keep going. And the reason that became untenable was because of the, you know, the, the possibility of the entire healthcare system collapsing under the sudden weight of sudden massive infections. Right. But nonetheless, in retrospect, the costs, for example, for a couple of years of schooling for children, the costs psychologically, mentally, economically, all the other things of shutting this place down for two years. It's easy to see now, and it, you I kind of give some credit to people who were more aware of the losses at the beginning and the costs of lockdown. But what I'm s- struck by, DeSantis, is, is, first of all, the clarity with which he seemed to understand it, and then the absolute refusal to moderate at all, to just stick with it, like to be absolute. Yeah. He's a—he's bloody-minded,
1: right? Yes. And he will not. Yes, and that is, he may be right on the science, ultimately more or less he may, may not be but, but to the extent he wasn't completely wrong anyway, it was completely just, wrong i think we can say that but but i think where you can't fault him is in his tone he right. is utterly stride he's dismissive of, of of questioning of criticism aggressively so he demonizes anyone who comes in his way and i think that's like when you when you go back as i did and you read a year's worth of newspaper clips, it's just sad. I mean, it's like this is, this is what political discourse has come to in the United States in the middle of a crisis. It's just this nasty, nasty bickering going both ways. The press ha- the press, by and large, even, even the quality press like the Miami Herald and the Tampa Bay Times, they have absolutely no trust in anything DeSantis says. And DeSantis has total contempt for those institutions and so the quality of the discourse is just it's it's horrendous it's worthless and so if you you go through like a year and a half or two years of that you think my god this is what the country's come to yeah and he
0: seems to be particularly dickish about it yes so let's take for example the parental rights act this 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 bill he put forward to prevent the teaching about sexual orientation and gender identity up to the eighth grade. So which, on its face, I,
1: I'll tell you myself, A- Andrew, having seen, yeah, go on. I thought it was the third grade.
0: Okay, third grade. Yeah, and if sorry. It's not, we'll go back
1: will go back and tape it again or something. I thought it was the third grade. Maybe, maybe I'm it wrong. It might be the.
0: It, my problem is that I grew up in England and grades have, I, I can never quite get my head around what grade is because Americans have this immediate translation of how old that is. <laughs> yeah. But I thought it was, maybe it's age eight, which would be yeah. third grade. Yeah. yeah, That's what I'm confusing. Yes. I meant- Okay, third. I'm sorry. Age eight. So no, my fault. Now, I've read some of the stuff, just, and it is kind of, I think, crazy, to be honest with you. I, I do think it's bullshit. And I do think it's a bunch of people got carried away with their own enlightened ideas about how you bring children up in ways that were not in any way, constant with most parents' desires for what was happening with the kids. Anyway, regardless of the merits of that bill, the bill was terrible in many ways. You could have done this in a much cleaner, easier way. You needn't have had vigilante justice, parents able to sue teachers. You would, needn't have had all this bullshit in the bill. You wouldn't have had vagueness in the language to make it, to give give the opponent's conceivable leverage to say this isn't just about this this is about intimidating any discussion of gay people or transgender people anywhere in the school that don't say gay stuff which i think was again another sign of our discourse it's kind of incredibly stupid and irritating yeah, yeah, yeah. and misleading but <laughs> there you go you have what seems to be a relatively sensible populist but not outrageous it's within the rights of a of a school system to say we're going to teach this and not that to our kids you got to make that decision and yet he turns it into this and then afterwards even after it has successfully passed because disney of course was quite lame originally then when afterwards it comes out and sort of throws its weight around then he goes after disney in this sort of fuck you my dick is bigger kind of way that makes sense of that for me. Like what is this? Is this who he is? This mixture of relatively sane government policy, but then this dickish populist bullshit on top of
1: it. Yeah. And I think, yes, I think. And I think those two things are inseparable, but I think what, what DeSantis has perfected from a purely pragmatic standpoint is, is coming up with things like the, for lack of a better word the don't say gay law which uh, as you say you can argue about the particulars of it or the you know exactly how it works and what it says and, and it's almost as though they are designed to to inflame the left and just like you know charlie brown kicking the football the lefties take the bait every time and he gets into a fight with you know with the press with, uh, with all his critics and they all get very, very hysterical and they call him a homophobe and everything else. <clears throat> and then he can stand up and before his supporters and say, I'm the guy who's like sticking up for you. I'm not going to back down to the, to the elite liberal establishments and that he's done that time and time and time again, he picks these, they're not, they're not phony issues. They're just, he, he, he plays them in a way that is, that seems designed to, to piss off his 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 opponents and they do it every time and they work and so this is what and i mean is a really good example of that it's his it's his tone it's he's incredibly strident he's very very angry this is what catapults Desantis to the national stage basically are these are these not small controversies but they're inflamed and they're they're bigger than they need to be and i think that works for him and then- like this this question of the DA in
0: Hillsborough. Yes. That seems to me to be another dickish move. I mean, I again not indefensible in terms of if a DA says that I don't intend to enforce this law that is attempting to put limits on se- the the sex sex changes for minors and to some extent abortion, yeah. then fuck you, you you can't just decide what laws on the other hand it did seem he went out of his way yeah. with that. That that little Mussolini press conference with the cops behind him and the sheriffs and the, yeah. all their chests are puffed out <laughs> and I mean, do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. I mean, it, it just looked like, come on,
1: but that's little il duce. That's the formula, and I think that right. that's the formula. And I think if you're, you know, that's I think he's tapping into the into the the contempt and the anger that that people. The people outside of, you know, Washington and New York and San Francisco and L.A., that's that's what that is, what they think of us.
0: He is within the rules. Right. He is within the rules in that you can, strictly speaking, do that. Yes. He does have the constitutional yeah. authority. Now, yes. there are mechanisms by which people can put the DA back in there. Right. Yes. So that yes. there are there are other methods. I
1: mean, they won't. but <laughs> <laughs> they, they won't because the legislature, both houses are controlled by the Republicans. But but he kind
0: of kind of wants you to think he's not doing it within the rules. Yeah. He kind of wants to give you the the sense that he's actually yeah. fucking with people on your behalf. Yeah.
1: That's right. Uh, he's a bully. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. And, and yeah. even I mean he looks like a bully. I mean he, he carries himself like a bully. His his, yeah. uh, his chest is stuck out. And yeah. when he when he walks and 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 there's the the we we can't forget the, the wonderful clip of him when he stands up at a press conference and there's a row of students behind him who are all masked, and he turns around and and just n- no sense of humor. And it's not apparent to me that DeSantis has a sense of humor, which I think is you know slightly troubling. But he yeah. just turns around and looks at these students and says, "Take your masks off." And yeah, you know, they're like they're kids, and so he's like a he's like a he's like the mean old guy at the end of the street, you know. And so that's kind of. But but I think to get I watch, I watched that Dexter because I, I was fascinated by that I didn't I didn't
0: think it was as bad as you point. he because halfway through he kind of realized oh these are kids what am I doing this and then yeah. so he kind of then said well you know I know this is you're told blah blah but but you're right about the visceral like fuck you what are you doing the
1: the thing that I think I a think, lot of
0: people feel that way right now well
1: I, I think yeah I, I think I at that point I'd seen I'd watched too many Desantis clips but. Mm. But he's he's not a very he's not a very jokey guy, you know, at least at least not in, at least not in public. And so and so it, it had me it had me wonder, like, can an angry politician win national office? Does anger work? Usually it doesn't. I mean, I guess Nixon, maybe Trump's Trump's not angry as much as I mean, he's angry. He's channeling anger, but he's kind of, you know, he's P.T. Barnum at the same time. DeSantis is angry. You know, he's pissed. And he's going to go up there and just and knock the shit out of people on your behalf. And can, can a guy like that get elected?
0: <laughs> Let me ask you this, then. If we had to pick between Trump and DeSantis, I mean, let's just, let's just assume those are our only options, just as a thought exercise. On the one hand, DeSantis understands the Constitution. He's a, he's a mainstream politician. He's, he understands the law. He has a first-class mind. Like Trump, he doesn't seem to have much of a sense of humor, although Trump can be funny in a almost despite himself. But DeSantis, not funny at all, it seems, not even able to get the joke. Who would you feel more comfortable with as president? That's the question.
1: I think you're not. I mean, you know, we all went through four years of Trump. I, th- I think what people say to me is I'm worried about DeSantis because he's competent. You know, that he'll be he'll be able to he'll be able to accomplish all the things that Trump said he wanted to do, but never, never managed to. And there's like, you know, there's something to that. But I but I think.
0: But my feeling about that is, well, if that means we actually do have an immigration policy that can work as opposed to complete crisis and bullshit, if you can actually have some movement in some ways that reassure the middle of the country, for example, that immigration is out of control, that isn't just rhetorical, then you know, then that's not the worst thing in the world. It's for me, the for me, the question with Trump is less the policy, because I always believe policy could be corrected on most things in time, but is the ability to break every rule that leaves us with a system that works. And I think Trump has is incapable of understanding those rules incapable of understanding those boundaries, and therefore is a completely uncontrollable time bomb at the center of our entire system. Whereas DeSantis, not so much, in my my view. But again, I'm just trying to figure it out.
1: No, I think you're right. And when you, and when you talk about immigration, I think that's a that's a great example. I think DeSantis understands, in a way, certainly that the Democrats don't understand how much. How how large the the problem of, of the open borders looms and and illegal immigration looms for the country. I mean, I think it I think it really I think that catapulted Trump. You know that that subject and I think DeSantis understands that in a in a kind of fundamental way. Whereas I I don't you know th- this is another subject for another day. But it's baffling to me how how tone deaf the the democrats have been on on just that on just that subject because it just i think it just it's just killing them i
0: think it just they just give this impression that it is a matter of complete indifference to them whether we have a functioning border or not and and that there are other things that they can care about more and that is for lots of people i will happily include myself <laughs> in that. nuts yeah and i will also say this that if you look at for example not to digress but if you look at The British situation, which we also had a similar immigration crisis, that actually was resulted in legislation which changed the law, and in which now there is a much tighter immigration system, which is actually introducing more non-white immigrants than might otherwise have been the case. Paradoxically, but nonetheless, it's under control. You know, you know what's happening, and the sense of no control is what drives
1: people. That's right. I think that's right, and I, I I feel like you know, whatever. Any president that gets control of the border is going to is going to lock in a majority for a long time, because it because it looms so large in people's minds. And again, I don't I don't understand. I, I got just completely baffles me how how the how the Democratic Party largely ignores all, all the situation at the border, just tries to excuse it like time again, or
0: change the subject. Yeah, because because it, it's, it's just is...
1: destructive to their to right. their own prospects. Right. right. Yeah. Right.
0: Although I think there's another. I think they they misunderstand the politics of it. I think it would help them in many ways. If yeah, I mean,
1: how many how many Latino politicians in Texas are going to have to flip right
0: to the Republican Party? It's 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 happening, and that's also a function of of Florida's politics as well. Now, DeSantis has appealed to Latino voters in, in ways that maybe Trump doesn't.
1: Yes, I mean, I think you know you 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 alluded to this, but there's been this, and I think it's I think it's naive. But there's been this expectation and this hope that the big Latino population in Miami, largely Cuban, historically conservative, historically Republican. That that the, the younger generations will, you know, won't have the baggage of their parents with Fidel and everything else, and they'll become Democrats. It's not happening, you know, And 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 I and in part because, you know, the Democratic Party nationally, but also in Florida. It's so anemic. I mean, I think the, I mentioned this in my story, that the Democratic Party in Florida applied for one of those small business loans during the pandemic for like distressed companies. You know, I mean, it's like, it's pathetic. It's like, they have nothing. And, but even, but even Latino constituencies in Florida, like, like the Puerto Ricans, who, who there's a, a large population of which is around Orlando, even they're beginning to trend towards Trump and, and away from the Democratic Party. Well, sorry, not, I mean, they're beginning to trend Republican and away from the Democratic Party, and so I think the the warning signs are everywhere. That that everything that the everything that the Democrats claim to want and claim to want to do is basically just leading to defeat. Yeah, the the, the latinxes are <laughs> uh, are on the move. You know, if you said that to a <laughs> Cuban in Miami, he would laugh at you. I mean, he would laugh. And, of course, and. and I don't know why they don't understand that. I mean, I feel like, I, like they just don't get out much. Um, well, this
0: is something I also wanted to get to because the, the social conservatism of DeSantis, one gets the feeling, for example, this Parental Rights Act, is really not that radical it's not. in so many ways. It's not. But it's a signal. It's a signal to people is that we get it. I'm not one of those people. I, I'm not crazy. And that's a huge advantage for politicians in 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 this in this culture i think yes i what worries me is that there's this it has revived i mean for example the okay groomer stuff this obsession with drag queens abusing children the this 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 sudden mania of accusing people of being pedophiles which is perpetrated in part by chris Rufo, who seems to have a uh, uh, some sort of psychic connection with DeSantis. Yeah. All of which is really classically ugly, old, nasty. Yeah, yeah, shit. yeah. Well, that's uh, but that's
1: you know that's kind of classic, classic American politics in the way that like you have DeSantis who walks this line very, very carefully, but then yeah. you have his, his press secretary, Christina Bushaw, who's yeah. rabid, absolutely yeah. rabid, and goes way over the line, accuses people basically if, if you don't support our bill, then you are a groomer. Um, You are a pedophile. And and of course, DeSantis knows this and he's aware of it and he enables it and he empowers it. So not unlike Nixon and Agnew and and the same effect.
0: But but unlike them, of course, he is actively now campaigning. And he seems to this this week we have these these dates that he's going to embrace and endorse the most crazy stop the steal candidates around the country. That seems to be. I mean, there are, there are two ways of understanding it. One of it is he's trying to chin up his cred as someone who'd be an alternative to Trump. Yes. Alternatively, that he's made the decision, or maybe he hasn't made the decision, that maybe I just go all in on Trump and I'm, I'm his natural successor after four more years, or even his vice presidential pick, and that I will then be the one doing the shit and he will be the showboat and then I will succeed him in 2028. That's that's that seems to be to be another possibility. What what do you what do you how does he re- relate to Trump? What did you find out about that? Just the personal stuff, too,
1: super complicated relationship, like not necessarily friendly. <laughs> I mean, cordial, maybe, but I think there's a lot of there's a lot going on underneath the surface. You know, DeSantis, I think, almost certainly would not be the governor of Florida without Donald Trump. He was he was running in the Republican primary. He was, he was, you know, not a nobody. He was a Congressman from kind of Northeast Florida, basically didn't have a lot of name recognition. There was an established Republican that was running kind of going nowhere. He starts going on Fox news and defending Trump in the Mueller investigation. Trump sees him on TV. What did somebody say to me? The president loves athletes endorses, endorses DeSantis. DeSantis just takes off like a missile and wins the primary and then just wins wins the general election by less than 1% of the vote. So he would I mean DeSantis is very much the creation of Donald Trump. Like he would not be the governor without him. And so I think the the tension between the two men now is DeSantis does not show gratitude and doesn't even gosh doesn't even like to appear with the president anymore. I mean completely completely calculating in 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 his public displays and his public appearances with Donald Trump and has kind of distance himself from him. And I think he's preparing to run at least for, I don't know if they've made their decision, but they certainly seem to be heading in that direction. But I think there's a lot of tension between the two men now, a lot. And I, and I've, you know, I, I heard things to the effect of there have been meetings in Mar-a-Lago where they've, Discuss the possibility. Maybe maybe we have to take him down a couple of pegs, but we haven't seen that yet because we don't know what Trump is going to do. And when you know, I I spoke to Trump for a while just a few weeks ago, and I couldn't tell. You know, I just could not tell like which way he was going. But the one thing he did say was the, the decision I have to make is when I is when I announce my decision. Do I do it before the midterms or after? And. So that so I think it's it all comes down to sort of timing at this point. But my my sense actually John Bolton said this pretty well recently if Trump has any sense that he won't win, he won't run. And so I guess the question would be if that's true, can Trump really be sure that he would win the nomination? What's your sense? God, it depends on the day of the week, but but mm-hmm. DeSantis you know, the problem is the primary system. I mean, I think I think DeSantis would be a much stronger candidate. I mean, I think he would wipe out most of the Democrats who who would who would likely run against him, but that doesn't mean he's gonna get the nomination. But he's certainly in some of the polls, like I think there was a recent poll in New Hampshire where he came out ahead of he came out ahead of Trump. And I think my sense is that it's turning. You know, it's like as people are getting sick of Trump, they're getting sick of the whining about 2020, and they're kind of turning to somebody else certainly like the establishment Republican Party, such as it is, would prefer DeSantis. What strikes me as
0: lacking in DeSantis is I've not
1: he- heard him give a good campaign
0: speech. I haven't heard him able to sort of rally crowds the way that Trump does. He seems he seems quite buttoned up. He's, he's more likely to be issuing a rather, you know, stiff-necked press conference insult than he is exciting people to kind of vote for something around a vision he seems a very negatively
1: defined yes candidate but yes. that
0: that might just be the press I don't know
1: no I like I saw him at CPAC in Orlando he spoke to Sanis and it was all it was basically you know 25 minutes of what he was against I'm against right I'm against the woke liberals I mean you know I'm, I'm against I'm against I'm against. And but at no point did he define actually what he was for, and so I, I, I do wonder. You know, the, the classic paradigm of American politics is you, you get the nomination and then you pivot to the center to get more votes so you can win. Trump didn't do that, and by you know a bunch of anomalies, maybe never to come again, he managed to win. Can Desantis can Desantis win if he were to get the nomination? Could he win without pivoting to the center? And if he has to pivot to the center, how does he do it? I mean, because he's he's burned so many bridges and his entire persona is strident and angry. So how does a person like that become a moderate? I don't know.
0: Let's, um, in the few minutes we have left, I want to, <laughs> this is a big topic to talk to, but obviously you did so much important work about Iraq and Afghanistan. What is your, having spent so much time there, your your sense, your emotional sense of where that country is. I mean, did we did we really fuck it up? I mean, is that a completely lost place? I mean, what we're now seeing with the Taliban, obviously anybody who's shocked, it seems to me that they would let Zawahiri in there seems to be completely naive, obviously. But on the other hand, was Zawahiri really a threat at that point? To what extent should we overreact to this obviously it's not good for the taliban's point of view they don't get any leverage to get their money back what's your what do you when you look back at all of that well apart from him how do you how do you feel about it
1: well i'm going to be kind of an outlier on this one but i but i think okay. i think as far as why here he goes yeah i mean he's a, he was an old guy he's i don't i mean he's yeah. he's make, making he's making videotapes and 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 radio tapes. He's not planning attacks. He's not like a threat himself. I think my sense is that the Taliban did that out of loyalty, which is very important to them. But and, and less out of like let's set up, let's set up the training camps again. I, right. uh, I mean, they're broke. Maybe they're acting against their own interests in that sense. But I don't, I don't see them going that way. On, on the other hand, I think Zawahiri was in the home of. If not owned by then then controlled by Dean Haqqani, who's the interior minister of of the Taliban government, he's a first class terrorist, drowning in his own blood. I mean, the Haqqani Network planned and orchestrated most of the suicide and car bombings in Kabul for the last, you know, 15 years. He's kidnapped Americans all, all the way down the line. But 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 I would say, I mean, you, you asked a larger question, which is, you know, how did we leave that place or is it kind of doomed? And I I think now it is, I, you know, I'm, I feel, I I still feel, and I, I know how you feel about this. I feel, I feel ambivalent about having left, certainly in the way that we did. And I feel, I feel ambivalent about it because I thought by the time we left, the cost was pretty low. We'd gotten it down to pretty much nothing. It didn't keep that, it didn't, it didn't take much to keep it going, you know, such as it was the kind of imperfect thing that it was, but we didn't want to do it. You know, so we just like closed up shop and left, you know, leaving behind this kind of hideous scenes that we, that we all saw. And I, I, you know, it's two it's two different questions, like the decision to leave and then how we left. Certainly how we left was a disgrace. But I think whether to leave, whether we should have left or not, reasonable people can disagree. I probably would have stayed.
0: Right. What's your most vivid memory
1: of those that time in Afghanistan? My most vivid memory would be when the Taliban was in power in the government in 1998, a long time ago, one of my first trips to Afghanistan. I was invited to, on a Friday afternoon, to a public execution in an amputation in the Kabul Sports Stadium. And and I was an honored guest. I was brought down to midfield while, I, while the, the Taliban cut off the hand of a person they said it was a pickpocket and then and then executed a guy who had been convicted of murder. All the while, an announcer was reading out of the Quran, in revenge, there is life. <laughs> in revenge, there is life. And that's my most vivid memory. But, you know, will we see that again? Like, I don't know.
0: <laughs> in revenge, there is life. That's that's That's,
1: that's, that's Trump. Right? <laughs> <laughs> coming around full circle
0: <laughs> yes what do you make of this by the way while we're at it this fbi raid it seems like a big upping of the ante to me i i took a deep breath when i heard that i hope my own gut i don't know yet i hope it's for good reason and i hope they got what they were looking for that's all i can say because i i don't know anything else but it don't you feel at some point this country's on a bit of a teetering moment where something like that could set shit off in ways that we don't want to
1: see the end of it's terrifying i mean if they don't find what they're looking for it's going to be terrible and i suppose what they're looking for is like presumably all the classified documents that trump walked walked out of the white house with that they say he walked out of the white house with but my god if they don't find what they're looking for yeah i mean you know it is a fragile moment and it's, it's terrible. And like, I, I just, I hope they thought this one through. I mean, Merrick Garland has been very quiet as the attorney general on most fronts, at least publicly. I mean, they've, you know, prosecuting hundreds of people for the January 6th raid but, but boy, this is really an upping of, of the ante, you know? I know. And
0: one of the paradoxes of confronting a person like Trump in a constitutional bureaucracy is that he's so outlandish and so outside the lines, the capacity of the established institutions to grapple with him within their own rules becomes harder. In other words, that they can, if they're not careful in our response to him, we actually start <laughs> legitimizing his own grievances which then creates a culture and climate in which we never recover faith in our public institutions or at least yeah. collectively we don't and if we it seems to me that the last 25 years say whether you start with bush versus gore at the supreme court yep. whether you whether you go through the way in which our leading institutions whether it be the fbi with respect to for example the clintons or hillary or the fbi with respect to trump where you have questions of whether the Secret Service is still solid, and the widespread instant reaction of most Republicans that this is this is a, this is is a deep state attack on. I've never lived in a culture where this is quite as bad as it has become. I mean, even in the 60s and 70s, I don't think that the institutions of law enforcement were thoroughly discredited, at least within the minds of the right of the country, which is, to my mind, by far, <laughs> it's familiar to have lefties hate things like the fbi and the cia but for the right to turn on them means we are in different different different
1: territory yeah totally i mean i you know i turned on fox news last night and all they could talk about was you know when we when we get back in power like we're going after hunter biden and okay you know this is like on paper you know this is like a country of laws but yeah i mean you can see where this leads you know it's not good
0: it could be a country of laws in which the laws are entirely selectively enforced for political purposes. I I honestly didn't think it would ever get to be this bad. And I do think Trump is because of his complete inability to understand any sense of responsibility for existing institutions is a huge problem and has has but has unraveled so many others. It's not just him. Yes. <laughs> That's on that lovely note. <laughs> I want to thank you. I I guess we're going to have to wait and see with DeSantis. I I I'm trying to figure him out. I I kind of I don't want to let my hopes for a non-Trump alternative to be naive and but here we are. It'll be a choice. We will we will have a democrat, we'll have a republican, we'll have to figure that out. But my one hope, which we've talked about, is that DeSantis is not constitutional vandal even though he wants to look like one
1: <laughs> that's right that's right very because it really does come down to theater i think largely
0: ah uh, it does a little bit what by the way what's his wife like what's his family life like that's also very sealed off and buttoned down isn't it i think
1: his wife is deeply influential i think that mm. that's that's the the one person that he trusts mm. and consults with on everything she's a former television mm. reporter She's she's beautiful very smart All accounts. And it's a pretty, it looks like a pretty happy family. You know, you know, DeSantis is known for the, for uh, he made an ad with his kids where he was teaching his young children to like imitate Donald Trump when he was running for governor. And, and as one of the political consultants in Florida said to me, it was the dumbest and most effective television ad in Florida history.
0: (laughs) What we'll do is we'll put that ad up on the page in which we put your the podcast up. So we, can, <laughs> we can actually see that. We'll also put the video of him talking to those kids about putting their masks oh, back on, just so people get the... Because everything's in the tenor and the timber of the statement, right? It's all about the attitude. Yeah, yeah make up your Dexter, I am very proud to have you as a, a reader, as a dish head over the years, and thank you for helping us figure this, this, this out a little bit better. Thank, it's by far the best profile of DeSantis, however hard it was to get the blood out of that particular stone thank you for it i hope you stay on the case andrew thank
1: you so much for everything
0: thanks so <laughs> much see you. we'll see you soon we yep. have one more before we take our summer break which i i'm looking forward to and so we'll see you next week thanks for listening and if you do like these podcasts and appreciate the fact that i'm not trying to sell you shit or interrupting shit or putting ads in the middle of it or cutting you off subscribe and help us Thank you.